I, he's this cartoon where these guys are like showing, this is my innovation, now where's my market? And the world doesn't work like that, right? There are needs and market needs you have to be aware of. What I believe is the key is to really understand your world that you're wanting to play in. Like when I went outside of ophthalmology, I didn't do very well. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast. We're so happy that you've chosen to spend some time with us. I'm your host, Trevor Schmidt. I'm an attorney at Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina. We work with founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies, start up, operate, get funded, and exit. We are daily inspired by the people we work with and want a chance to share some of these stories with you, our listener. So whether you're already an entrepreneur want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success. This podcast is for you. Today's guest is Daniel White, a serial entrepreneur in the life sciences space who has founded five biopharma healthcare companies and raised over $475 million in his career. Our conversation covers a lot of territory, from the ups and downs of running a company, the challenges of raising money and the fear of running out of cash, building an innovative startup culture and dealing with regulators and investors. For Daniel, his entrepreneurial journey began when he was working for Novartis about 20 years ago, where they were very aggressive, similar to a startup company. They had not only drugs, but they also had devices and beauty of contact lenses. All of the above had very unique growth trajectories. When 2001 hit, it was, if you recall back then, that was the dot bomb. The Vardis ended up becoming the 18th largest bank in the world. Unlike many of the competing companies we had in our field, we just became very ambitious. We did about, I mean, I had one year where we did 10 licenses and one acquisition. Daniel was in business development at the time, but wanted something more. So he and a couple of his colleagues at Novartis formed a new company, Alamara Science. And we got into a basement, cobbled up some ideas around what could be close to market. There was a, a bit of a commercial bent to the group and we formulated two OTC products. And then we did the largest series A in Southeast history at that time, which was about $26.2 million. So how, how did you get to that point? Was it the products or how did you get to that point where you get the, the, the largest series A? You know, during that period of time, and it, it, all, it all moves in different directions, but there was quite a few investments in management teams. There was a fair amount of acquisition going on and people believed in management teams and wanted to do something, felt like that was a good tactic for investment. I still think that is a good tactic for investment. But finding a great management team and being able to put some products into it just the product cycles are very slow and it takes on its own development. We used that Series A to acquire some technology for our company for retina disease. We had just been a part of the group to launch a very first retina product called Vigidon for wet A&D. And we bought a product for diabetic macular edema. There wasn't a product at the time in diabetic macular edema. We then did a Series B raise of $32 million just right on the heel. So not even within the first 18 months. Here we have nearly you know $60 million to work with for uh, this company. Then we saw some sales shortfalls for our OTC group. We sold off that 
business for 29 million. As you can see quickly, we, there's $90 million in this company and there's, that's enough to keep the lights on. It was a great experience. My first real experience in raising capital and I've been on the buy side, but I really hadn't been on the sell side before. I've been on the buy side through CBA Vision with you know, making investments in the company, but I never really had been part of the sell. Yeah, it sounds like you had a, quite the introduction for that, you know, first Series A. But what were some of those, the lessons that you learned at, during your time with Alamara? First of all, just exposure to the type of agreements, contracts that you deal with when selling capital, some of the rules of selling capital. Those rules kind of evolve during the recession, but that was interesting. That was a new experience for me. I'm, I'm sure we broke, I don't know, hopefully we didn't break too many SEC rules. <laughs> we got the company off the ground. It became a public company. I think also some of the things that I think about was how the culture and teams begin to work together within a small company versus a large company. Mm-hmm. A lot of those tools we use in HR are culture building and uh, having everybody having a role within a large company is a little bit different on a small company because the spotlight is always on you, no matter what position you hold. And there is only one player per position, usually within a small company. And so we don't build out big staffs. We typically do it on the shoestring. I like the idea of doing a lot of different things mm-hmm. and only doing one thing within a larger role. That That's exciting. But where we give people accountability, where we give people the freedom to accomplish their own mission, to paint their own painting, as I always say within my groups, that if there's a mistake, it can be devastating. Or if there's a shortfall in timeline, or, or in that case, we had revenues, right? We were a small company making money, which is actually unique. If you miss your forecast, I mean, that's devastating. You have to make pretty big, hard decisions to keep company afloat at that point in time. So many companies can absorb that type of thing that are larger. A small companies, that's very difficult. Did you have to be super intentional about that, even from the very beginning when you were a small founding team? Or is that something that developed by necessity? That's an art. It really is something that you want people to come and work for your company. They don't want to be micromanaged and, and, and try not to. You try to also, without scaring people half to death, <laughs> You talk about the cash flow going out the hourglass saying we've got 12 months of cash. We've got nine months of cash. Things that I'm very comfortable with, they're going to go out and raise money. Some people take that differently and that's difficult to kind of assimilate when you're a young parent and raising a family and that type of thing. And being able to absorb any of these problems. But you also, there's ways of jumping in and not jumping in to help move that particular uh, effort along, whatever that is. When you go in, when you work in a small company, and I'm sure you experience this in your own company, there's a different, very unique problem to face every day. They, they never go away. I, I really like that. I really like being able to work on solving some of these complex problems to keep the company afloat and keep it moving toward the shareholder value. And at the same time, watching people develop and Moving them along. I love bringing young people to a company, so move them ahead as fast as I can. Do you find something unique about working with sophisticated science teams? I mean, is there a different management challenge for working with your science team as compared to, say, your business or sales team? I work in a very rigorous science field. Fortunately, I've been exposed to every type of problem that could be faced, I imagine, within some of these fields. Scientists 
when I bring them in and typically they have to get used to the fact that I'm not an MD, I'm not a PhD. So there's a measure of respect kind of show that goes on typically. That's eased off the more experience I have and the more money I've raised and, and companies I've worked with. But it doesn't take long for them to figure out that I didn't do this by chance. I'm a pretty curious guy. I'm a very intentional, diligent guy. I ask a lot of questions. And some people, can that can be off-putting, but that's primarily because of my diligence background with buying companies. You want to find out all the truths and answers. It's not a sign that I don't trust them. It's a sign that I really am interested and curious. And I love data as much as anybody. And I can look at things and see things within the data that aren't necessarily the case. I think that is a challenge for some scientists who've worked with me in the past. Also, I'm a big believer in a number of things, and a lot has to do with culture building, both within ClearSide as well as within Alamira, I believed in uh, building cultures. There's kind of five pillars that I've boiled this down to, I think, for a period of time. And one is what I call servant leadership, not telling people what to do, is helping people move along. That's really important. The second is integrity. There just can't be any BS or lying that goes on within the company or within the data sourcing. I'm very big on teamwork, and that can be uncomfortable in many respects. I don't know how you were trained, but I was trained in business. So we, we have teams, everything we do. I mean, everything was about teamwork and class participation, being able to communicate and articulate what your point is quickly. Scientists are taught differently. Scientists are typically taught as individuals to show that they can individually solve and lead the solution to a problem. And sometimes it's teamwork and aligned with that, my fourth one, communication. As long as those two things are done, and I like a lot of communication, I like to hear the good, bad, and ugly, and that's always a big part of me. So it's getting them used to that, what's going to happen there. The last one, we celebrate success, but as a team, I don't typically throw out individual accolades very often. I typically keep it as a team because it's typically... I share stock options all throughout the company. I make sure that everybody is going down the same business plan path and they're compensated for it. How do you get different teams to buy into this cultural vision? I mean, are there specific techniques that you use to to get that buy-in? Two of the most important things that I find is transparency and visibility. I think when you bring in employees and into a team like ClearSide or Alamira, there's an evolution and you got to discuss how that evolution is going to take place and not, not sugarcoat it. I think you need to make people aware just as though they're your partners, that visibility is important. Being there so that you can spend time with them. I mean, it's easy either spend all your time on the road or all your time in the office, but you got to be visible in both places all the time, allocating enough your personal time for everybody to see you spend time in your office with you and in you with them. Those are very important. I think that helps uh, move the vision along. And then you have to continue to reinforce that culture. And I actually make that a part of our uh, bonus plans. So you're actually measured on it at the your annual uh, review and you're measured by it, by your bonus. It's funny. Some people, that's everything. And some people, that doesn't mean anything. So mm-hmm. you have to see how it goes. I wanted to go back and ask you a question. A couple of times you've mentioned some of the experience that you had at Novartis. And I wondered how important having had 
some experience at a larger company was to your future success as an entrepreneur and as founding companies? Or do you believe people could just jump right into to being an entrepreneur and have that same type of success? I always encourage younger people who have the stars in their eyes and dreams in their head that try to start, and even my own children, try to start if you can with a larger company and get some experience there. I started with Glaxo Welcome. I went to Novartis later on in my career. And the reality is, particularly Novartis, is a great company. It was a great company. It was a great opportunity for me. The exposure to the tools they use, some of the most sophisticated math that I've ever seen, the breadth and the global reach. They've believed in putting in an airplane and getting to expose to as many opportunities as possible and inventors and innovators as possible. From that perspective, they did me a a great service and I really, really appreciate that. Not only, they even sent me to Harvard twice for advanced finance work as well. So that too was an education in its own right. I hated to leave Novartis, but when I look back, I I can remember this like yesterday. It's like, I was asking myself, boy, what's going to happen if I go to my deathbed and say that I've never tried it? My grandfather was an entrepreneur. He had done this and I had it kind of in my blood. So I really wanted to give it a try and I hated to leave. I think it's important to spend at least two to three years with a major company who's just got it all together and they're doing great work. And who knows, I may even want to go back to something like that. Right now, I'm probably more comfortable as an entrepreneur. That'll teach you so many things, so much more than an education will give you, so much more than a PhD will give you or an MBA will give you. Then try it. I think that's kind of the way I, way I went about it. Tell us a little bit about the move into ClearSide. Alamir had gone public, so I got to sell all my stock there. I was doing quite well. I really didn't need a job. And I was contacted by a guy named Harold Slevin, and he was doing some work with Georgia Tech at the time. And he said, hey, this company's got this unique microneedle technology that's an interesting opportunity in ophthalmology. Could you come take a look at it? It could be a kind of quick device, play, get out of the marketplace. And I went down and looked at it. First time I saw it, I was like, this probably isn't going to be a big seller. I mean, needles are pretty old technology. I went home and I, and I said, forget this. I fell asleep. I kind of slept on it. And it's a very important lesson. You should always sleep on some of these big decisions and, and really think them through all the way. I woke up in the middle of the night and there was this sliver of data that was almost too good to be true where they could inject in this certain area of the eye using their microneedle technology. I had some experience with the molecule they were using and it looked like they were changing the pharmacology of the molecule within the closed embodiment of the eye. Hmm. I called back and said, I'd like to take another meeting. I just want to focus on that data alone. That ended up being, in my mind, a groundbreaking achievement by Georgia Tech. They were able to reach an area of the eye that no one had ever considered reaching before. And by putting a product there, they're able to not only change the way the product is distributed within the eye, they also can confine the product to an area that is slower dissolution, that has better or higher concentration to treat the disease or going after the retina, which is right next to it. It opened up this whole field called superchoroidal drug delivery, which we pioneered 
at the clear side. We made a really important strategic move that day to not make it a device company, but make it a drug company. And by doing that, you could take any drug that was known to man, and if it changed the pharmacokinetics, you were able to put it in the eye differently. And that just inspired us to look at different ways of treating retina disease and continue my career on the, on the retina front where I've been there since 2000. It hits on something super important, too, it seems to me. is just obviously for these types of businesses, you have to have you know, the great science or the great technology underlying it. How do you stay on top of what's available? Or if you're a young founder, how do you go about identifying that technology that is worth building a company around? That's an interesting conversation in its own right. In many cases, I I use this cartoon where these guys are like showing, this is my innovation, now where's my market? The world doesn't work like that, right? There are needs and market needs you have to be aware of. What I believe is the key is to really understand your world that you're wanting to play in. Like when I went outside of ophthalmology, I didn't do very well. But when I stayed within ophthalmology, particularly retina, I tend to do very well. And I've got two public companies out of the three that I started, and the two were in retina. That tells you something. And the next two are in retina too, by the way. So uh, that is an area where I'm quite comfortable understanding, I almost envision it in my head, knowing what the market needs are in that space and being able to assimilate those. You can even run into companies and technologies that have no purpose whatsoever for the eye. And you identify things that are saying, yes, that could be quite valuable for the eye. And in fact, that's part of the case in one of the new companies I'm starting. I think what what occurs has a little bit to do with financing. So this is also very important. When you first start out with a university level technology or even a, even a little further, what ends up happening is the risk tolerance of your investors are wanting something that doesn't need to be so big. They hope you could sell within phase two or so. And that's kind of their mission. And you have to be aware and okay with that mission. However, once you get past your first two rounds, your next group of investors are bigger. They're much more sophisticated. And they're saying, well, where's my billion dollar product when you go in there? You have to be aware of that and you have to be ready for it. Being in a field where you can get some singles and doubles, but you gotta have a home run somewhere in your back pocket. And you have to have some evidence or some work performed on that home run so that you can move the ball forward. And I think you have to have a dual approach to be successful these days, within by pharma anyway, so that you really are offering up a billion, an opportunity for a billion dollar valuation, at least, if not a billion dollar market. Sounds like a big part of that is understanding the right investor to target at the right time, or at least understanding what your investor's goals are. It is a little bit of combination between and that, that's very hard, by the way, because with investors, you've seen one, you've seen one. They don't want to be embarrassed in front of their, port, uh, their partnership. They want to bring in really compelling technologies that aren't too wonky. And they want to see things that really can put, have a meaningful impact. You have to make them your partner. With ClearSide, I had a friend, Clay Thorpe, up in Durham, who uh, was at Hatteras. And he and Christy Schaefer were interested in both my background in ophthalmology, but also of the ophthalmology space. And they, you, it has to be their pet projects as much as yours. 
because they're going to be committed to this thing for years. Although you're operating at this company, it's a group think kind of deal. Your, your investors have to be bought in at every level of the both technical, intellectual property, the management team, and their partner investors that they're going into. They have to be bought into the whole thing. Yeah, and I guess if you could speak a little bit more about that. First, just the idea of attracting these investors. How do you find the right investors for the right product? Or do you just selling the idea that this is a product that's going to have a financial impact for them? Uh, that's a great question. So I'm going to handle this one in a couple of points, if you don't mind. I think it's important you understand corporate finance in some respects. Just jumping out there and babbling out what your, your invention is, is not enough. It, you, know, you really need to lay out a capital budget. You need to lay out where the inflection points are. You really need to lay out what kind of money you need to reach those inflection points. And I even put together a pro forma cap table in the show when we're going to raise capital, what the return is going to look like for each list stage of the capital, what we're expecting from every investor, and even break it all the way down to that. It's not a promise, but it's a plan. It's a plan to say, this is the intention. And so it goes with the capital budget to say, if you're going to make this investment, this is where we're going with it. I have that in my back pocket, and we just, that's for discussion. They, when we get into further deals, just once they've had an opportunity to see the technology. That's when you're ready to go. You got a pitch deck, it's got a really great scientific thesis. It's got a kind of clear clinical feasibility associated with it. Then it's got this kind of corporate financial charter and hopefully some intellectual property and a management team that maybe has some skills. That's about the best combination of things that you can put into play. Now, one of the things that I've often told inventors, this is the second part of my story, is that you'd be surprised if, if that you probably already know some of the investors that you're thinking about. You've been at a conference and some guys come up to you and hand you his business card. Networking, understand who your network is. Following up with, hey, you know, I saw you at this conference. I wanted to just follow up real quickly and let you know who I am and what I'm doing doesn't mean that I'm asking you for anything. It's just a friendly follow-up. Many, many inventors or thought leaders have been involved in diligence, and they've been called up by different venture funds to help them understand a certain technology. So they've got the respect already in there and groundbroken, and then all they have to do is call that person back and say, hey, by the way, I'm starting a company. How's it going to say, wow, well, I always respected your call over here, and let me take a look. So that brings a lot to the table. Listening to your story, it sounds like you've had some tremendous success over the course of your career. I wonder if there was any mistakes kind of that you made along the way that kind of stand out in your mind that really, you know, taught you an important lesson or, or something that stands out in your career. When you look at your career from the infancy of a startup through IPO and even after, there's quite an evolution of a company. And, and, and there are a lot of things that I think are important that you you do. We talked a little bit about providing the autonomy to people and knowing when to step in, when not to step in. But when you look at understanding valuations of innovation, timelines are much more valuable than money. They're much more valuable. And so meeting timelines and achieving timelines and hitting those points you need to be able to, again, provide the autonomy for people to do it, but then step in and know when to step in. 
there was a case one time when and it, this happens with every small company, young company, where data never comes in in time. It never comes in, in time. And patient recruitment never happens in, in the timeline you allot it to. So you have the instincts to go through that. I don't know if I was seasoned enough. And I am now, boy. <laughs> I, I, you just don't want people coming in once every a quarter and telling you how you're running your business. I mean, that's not really valuable. Well, so we are the Founder Shares podcast. And so I like to ask all of our guests, if there was one piece of advice that you wanted to share with somebody who's thinking about starting a new business or somebody who's you know, just started their business and are up and running, what's that piece of advice that you'd want to share? That's a good question. I've become more honest with the answer over the years, the way I say it. My wife doesn't like me putting it this way. But... <laughs> So I guess you've learned that I'm a pretty curious guy about, especially molecular biology. The way money works within the context, I'm really good at that. Being able to tell your scientific and innovative story in a simplified way, I think that's very important. And I think I've been pretty good at that. Maybe I've been real naive a little bit and haven't taught myself out of some of the things most people have taught themselves out of. I think having that in context when I, when I look at myself with those attributes, I think it's important that a person have some of those characteristics. That I, I'm very surprised and put off in some respects over how many people don't believe enough in their own intuitions and their own capabilities and giving entrepreneurism a shot. I mean, I think it's important to kind of overcome your personal inhibitions. You know, here I am, you know, we have never met face to face, but I'm not the tallest guy in the world. You know, you think about leaders, they're always tall, good looking, and you know, they look like they just came out of a country club. That's not necessarily the case. Here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm not very tall, a little overweight. I'm typically not your prototypical leader in the healthcare space without an MD or PhD, but I've been very effective about what I do and how I've done it. You don't fit the, the models. And I think many people put themselves away because they feel like their own insecurities kind of stop them. And I think I find that too bad because I think they bring a lot to the table. And I really encourage people to go for it. Just like we talked about earlier, don't go to your deathbed saying you wish you would have done it. I mean, that's very important, I think, to your entire audience. And I think if you have those attributes to get past that and you have thick skin and you're just hard-headed, then I think your audience can do it. There's nothing stopping them. All of the things Big Pharma brings to the table, keep building your intellectual property base, make them want you, keep at it, keep climbing the mountain, keep being initiative. I was laughing the other day, I was, someone sent me this TikTok thing on LinkedIn and it was this little kid, he's probably three years old on a skateboard. He's padded up like to the gills. And he's trying to ride the skateboard down these stone steps. There's like eight stone steps he's trying to go down. And he goes down two and he's plow. He crashes. <laughs> he goes down three more and he's smash. He smashes again. And he finally gets down to the second level and he's down again. And then after five or six times, you know, he finally gets to the bottom. He just raises his hands in the air and he's thinking about he just climbed Mount Everest or something. And I was like, that's being a biotech CEO. <laughs> All these people and complications and things are pushing you down. And you just get back up again and you keep on going, you keep on going, and you keep on going with your innovation. And that's the willpower that I believe 
many, many people have, but they talk themselves out of it for their own insecurities. And I think that's a great shame. And I, and I would be behind them 100% and going to being an entrepreneur. It's been a great life and a great career so far. Well, that's fantastic advice. And I've really enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate all that you've had to, to share with us. I've really enjoyed it and just fascinated by your story. And I just appreciate you coming on. Trevor, I really appreciate the time and the podcast. It's been fun. Yeah, I'm sure some of these things could be going for hours of fun and hope you consider me as a guest in another time. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Daniel. That was Daniel White. Be sure to be on the lookout for news from Daniel and his new ventures in the coming months. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, we'd love to hear from you. You can start by visiting our website at hutchlaw.com. That's H-U-T-C-H-L-A-W.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and we'll talk to you next time on the Founder Shares Podcast.